Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Exploding Rabbit podcast. My name is Matt Geyer. I'm here with Jay Pavlina. You know, you could let me introduce myself. Uh, I was I was leaving a space there for you to say something, but I could let you just say your own name. I'm kind of like trying to model this after like Pod Save America. Sure, I'm here with... Jay Pavlina. It's perfect. We'll cut all the rest of the stuff out. <laughs> So, what have you been up to since our last podcast? I think it actually turned out really well. Yeah, I was pretty happy with how it turned out, and we got about 750 listens, which I think is a good starting point for a new podcast. I was actually surprised from that clip that you posted, like you were able to find the magazine cutouts. Oh, right, yeah. We're referring to the uh, April Fool's joke that possibly inspired the development of Super Mario Crossover. When I was talking about it, I thought it was from Nintendo Power. And so then, yeah, I looked into it, and it actually was an EGM, which is funny, because that's what you mentioned. Yeah, I'm glad my memory's not uh, totally dead yet. Apparently mine is. (laughs) (laughs) So what have things been going on at the Exploding Rabbit headquarters? (laughs) Yep, Exploding Rabbit headquarters in my apartment. Exactly. Worldwide headquarters. Oh, yeah. Did you see we've upgraded Exploding Rabbit headquarters to have a painting? Oh, uh, because you got like your Series 1 funding. So you got uh, <laughs> paintings in all the offices now. Yep. Uh, for, for those listening on the audio, the podcast portion, we got a nice uh, flowery painting that my wife put up behind me so that I'm not just standing in front of a white wall. So, yeah, aside from the, the painting upgrade... Yeah, it's been a pretty crazy month for me. You know, sometimes with game development, you can go down a rabbit hole. Oh, branding. Oh, wow, yeah, nice. An exploding rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really glad we didn't call the podcast The Exploding Rabbit Hole. (laughs) You're listening to The Exploding Rabbit Hole? (laughs) Yeah, so I got sucked into an exploding rabbit hole. If you have experience as a programmer you know you can well they call it code smell Mm -hmm. i don't like the term because it sounds disgusting it does (laughs) but uh i was getting into some gameplay programming as i mentioned on the last podcast i had been doing a lot of work on the editor so when i was getting back into the gameplay code i was just starting to feel like i feel like i'm gonna run into problems if i maintain the setup Sort of feel hacky? It wasn't structured enough. And so I was looking for a way to um, have more structure. And also, at the same time, um, Unity released a preview for their kind of the new direction that they're going with their engine, which is based on a design pattern called Entity Component System. I think we, we touched on it last episode, but uh, we didn't go in depth at all. Um, people refer to it as ECS for short. You have an entity component and a system. And the entity is just a holder of components. And components only contain data. And so all of your gameplay logic goes into systems. So the advantage is that the data is completely separate from the logic. Right. Uh, Unity's approach to it is even taking it a step further. What they're doing is called data-oriented design. Have you heard that? I have. When you make the components with their new system, they will physically um, lay out the memory uh, in a way that's like particularly optimal for their compiler. And they also have this new compiler that they're releasing called the, the Burst compiler. There's a good video you sent me where they talked about how optimized they said ideally like a hundred times x oh i thought i thought you said i thought you said they said ideally a hundred times like the word ideally oh no (laughs) no it in an ideal world it's like a hundred times uh having the the compiler optimized and some other like changes in the system they really said that a hundred times i believe it was a hundred uh if i'm not mistaken i could be but it was it was a very large number 
just from the compiler, but I think it also was a restructuring of how you do things that is beneficial to their new compiler. Yeah, so their their compiler will work together with the new way that they're encouraging you to write code, which is good because the way that they used to encourage you to write code sucks. <laughs> because they have this one, I don't know if I'm getting too technical, but they have this one class, which they call the mono behavior, and basically everything you write derives from that, which is actually kind of similar to what I was talking about with my design for Super Mario Crossover's code. If you remember, I had like a class called Level Object. Right. Which actually, which was actually called LevObj. LevObj. Because of my weird abbreviations. There's actually a word for that that some people refer to it as a God Object. God Obj. <laughs> no. I'm talking about like a programming, uh, an actual term. Just like because so, you have to start with something, so it's always like you derive from that. Yeah, it's like the thing that everything derives from. Right. So then that object has like everything on it. So every time you derive from it, you're getting all this additional data and behavior that you you don't want to use most of the so time. So how does um, this new entity component system, like how does that beneficial for game programming? Because it is, it's a, in my mind, it is a much better fit for games than it is just standard object oriented. Yeah. For how games are built. So why don't you, could you go into that? It's basically like to add behavior to something, you just need to add the component. Right. All of your entities are really flexible. Like, let's say you have, like, you have a character that can lift things. You know, with object-oriented, you'd have to have, like, a class or something that has, like, an is-liftable variable. But with ECS, all you do is just add the is-liftable component to anything, and then anything can be lifted. Right, I think that that is is a much more natural way to even how we think about how games work. It basically means like anything can have any behavior. I feel like you don't have to know as much about your game in advance. With the way that they used to have it, your components also had behavior. Since your components have behavior and data, you'd have to do more planning ahead of time to make them work together. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, like you got an object that you want someone to carry, you just add your is carryable component to it, your carry handle system, you know, whatever it's called, that just operates on whichever objects are carryable. Yeah, and it's a lot, it, to me, that's like a lot of code reuse too. So like if you have an object that is carryable, you just attach that and boom, you use like the same sort of code that every time. Yeah, and it's cool because that system won't, op- it won't operate unless there are objects that are carryable. Mm-hmm. Um, the system will still be there, but like, it's smart. Like it, it'll automatically activate and deactivate when you need it. But that's what I mean. It's like you don't have to plan as far in advance because if you just need to add some behavior, you just add the component you need, write the system. The system is completely independent of everything else. So it's like a really nice, clean architecture. It seems like it's it's perfect too for fast iteration. So if you want to like do like really quick tests on like a specific system or something you want to gameplay uh thing you want to try out, like you can do that really quickly as opposed to like having to go through the whole object-oriented tree. Yeah, another thing that's really cool is when you're testing the game like you can just turn off systems. I don't know if you want to like isolate some kind of behavior or see what your game is like without gravity or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, just no. Something weird. I don't know, maybe you got some system that's handling some graphics stuff. You want to turn off some of the graphics behavior, make it look really weird. or And, and in general, like even outside of game programming, like separating your, your layers of abstraction separation are always, the, the more tightly you can uh, encapsulate them, the better. Uh, if you don't have things that rely on one another, it's easier to fix bugs later as well as add on additional features. So. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard to do that, uh, logically thinking about it and um, implementing systems that work that way. Yeah, and that's actually kind of what I was talking about. I know what it's like when your code gets out of hand and you can't really, like, add stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can, but you're afraid you're going to break something. And So I know what that can lead to, and it's better if you catch it early as opposed to catching it too late when you can't change it. Yeah, I think that that's why so many people... Uh, including myself with some some of the work I do at my job is um, they dread entering legacy code systems yeah uh, because it always like 
I don't think people, anybody starts out and being like, oh man, I'm just going to go in here and write the worst code. <laughs> <laughs> it starts out with like a design and then over time you never spend the time to uh, actually do a fix, an addition, a feature addition correctly and things spiral. You're right. You do get like a sixth sense about like, oh, I need to get this done. This isn't going to be right, but I could spend no time and get it working or spend a little time and separate it out and and do it correctly. Yeah. And in some instances that might be the right decision just to get it done, even though it's shitty. But if you're working on a long-term project, a code base that you're going to be working with for a while, then if you have the opportunity to fix it before things get out of hand, then I think it's the, the right decision to take it. Yeah. I'm in agreement on that. Um, you don't always have that luxury, but it, it is a better practice to do it that way. Yeah, and I just thought since Unity's going ECS anyway, like now's the time to do it. You've also been spending a little bit of time looking at a different engine uh, aside from Unity. There's a lot of issues with Unity, like a lot of things that I don't like about it. It's mainly the editor, just like it's so clunky and bulky and it crashes all the time. Code editor or like the actual 3D engine editor? I mean, you can use any code editor. So I'm talking about the, like Unity, Unity doesn't even have a... Does it use like MonoDevelop or something like that by default? It used to, but now it uses uh, Visual Studio because they, they have a Mac version of Visual Studio, which isn't really Visual Studio, but they pretend <laughs> that it is. I actually really like Visual Studio outside of... No, yeah, I agree. I, I think Visual Studio is a great IDE. It's awesome. I, I, Yeah, totally. But the editor that Unity runs in, it crashes all the time. <laughs> I mean, like, maybe every one or two minutes. Like, that's how often I mean. Ooh, that's really bad. My experience with Unity is generally just workarounds. Like, I'm just always trying to work around some weird thing that the engine is doing. Do you find that, because you're part of the Unity community... Um, the community. Uh, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like that is a common complaint that people have? Like that happens to a lot of people? Yeah. Um, I mean, all the, the professionals. I mean, the community sort of got, I don't want to say taken over, but a lot of people just like post on the forum and they're new and they're just like, what's a null reference exception or something like that, you know? It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. Uh, or just some like like how do like why isn't my collider like touching or, I don't know just some like, <laughs> dumb question like why why isn't my sprite showing up? But then there's also you know the professionals and Unity tries to appeal to like everybody. I just think it tries to do too much as an engine. But anyway, let me let me continue my story because it'll lead to Godot. Sure. So Unity is releasing this entire new way of programming basically and. I don't know if they'll ever phase out the old way, but they're going to want everybody to use the new way when it's done. Uh, but it's currently in preview. Like, I don't want to be making a game with, like, a preview version, you know? There's this other ECS framework that's really good. Everybody that talks about it loves it. It's called Entitas. You ever heard of that? I have not. I think it's probably the most popular ECS framework, but I'm not 100% sure on that. The guy that works on it, I don't know if he made it specifically for Unity, but it has really good Unity integration. You don't have to use it with Unity. It's a C-sharp ECS framework. Mm -hmm. You can tell something's good that when the people that use it are all really smart, you know, like if you go into their chat, they're really active and people are asking smart questions and giving smart answers. It's a good tip, you know, go to where the smart people are. Exactly. Since Unity's ECS was in preview and ECS appears to be the future, probably of game programming in general. I decided to use Antitas. Since Antitas can actually run outside of Unity, every once in a while I'll just do a quick search. Any new like cool C sharp game engines? Yeah. <laughs> just the, just ask Google. Just putting that out there. I, I forget I forget what that site. I don't know what the site is called, but it like ranks like you ask it a question and it ranks all of the apps. So, like, you'll say, like, what is the best 2D game engine? And it'll, like, rank according to voting. Interesting. I don't know if I've ever been to this site. It's just, if you ask a question, like, what's the best painting app or something, like, 
usually this website will come up and it'll like rank all the apps and whatever question you asked and Hmm. it'll give like a little synopsis of each strengths and weaknesses of each one it's it's community driven i don't know what it's called but it's useful cool but yeah i was on that site and it's like godot and it said it was c sharp and i'm like how have i not heard of this if it's c sharp and this is a game engine that's been it was kind of made by one person originally i don't remember for how long he's been working on it but it initially had its own scripting language but now it supports c sharp but the C-sharp support is still kind of new. It's not something that I'd want to get into right now just because it's still in its, I don't know if I want to say infancy, because it's out of preview, but there's still a lot of issues. So the fact that I could use Godot, even if not right now in the future, uh, yeah, I spent a week or so messing around with it and looking stuff up. And it's an open source game engine with both uh, 3D and 2D support another cool thing about it is the game doesn't run in the editor so the editor doesn't crash like a hundred times a minute so the the game actually like compiles down to like an executable and then runs right separately and i wish that's how unity worked because like that's probably what causes all the crashings because the editor tries to do everything in the world (laughs) like why do i have to do everything in the editor like that's why i made my own editors because i the unity editor sucks um, the animator that I was working with, when I told him, like, you know, are you okay with using Unity to make animations? He's like, no. Because <laughs> it's like, it's so clunky. It's like, why does it do so much? So, like, simpler tools are better. And Godot is open source, and it's free. Which is great. I mean, like, knowing how all the, the sausage is made or whatever, being able to modify uh certain things are seeing like oh i'm getting this weird crash why and you can actually step through it like that's huge yeah because with unity like i'll go on a little tangent here because it's dear to my heart unity has a tile mapper now did i tell you that i helped them design it no i don't think so at one point unity was asking for like 2d people to advise them and i volunteered and then yeah i helped them design their tile mapper tool Worked pretty closely with a cool guy uh, named Yuha. Shoutouts to Yuha. Yeah, he's a cool dude. Um, so me and him kind of worked pretty hard to design the tile mapper to make it easy to use. And he even changed he had changed the entire design because of some input that I gave him. That's cool. Originally, the tiles were just sprites. And I was like, no, the tiles should be objects so you can put anything into a tile. And so that required a complete rewrite of the engine. But... I think everyone would agree that the tile mapper is better for it. The problem is, when I try to use it for the last six months, I can't because there's a bug. <laughs> and since Unity is an open source, and Yuha actually doesn't work there anymore, he quit. Or I don't know. I don't know if he quit or whatever, but he doesn't work there anymore. So my connection to the Unity 2D team is gone. So you can't even like have a good report to it. Like, when I would tell you how, like, hey, there's a problem, he'd be like, oh, no problem, I'll fix it right away. But now he doesn't work there anymore, so I'm tweeting at the 2D team, like, hey, can you guys fix this? They finally said it's fixed. It's been six months since I told them about it. I mean, I'm not the only one complaining about this bug either. But if it was open source, like, you could just fix it yourself. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. Like, that's the beauty of open source is, like, you can, if you have the means, fix it yourself. Um, and then supply that fix to the community who gets to benefit from that as well. Like, it's not a black box, and you're not scared because you know if there is a problem, you can take care of it. Like, if you're dependent on Unity to fix something, what if they never fix it? Or what if they take six months and you needed to deliver your game five months ago? And and broader, uh, you kind of always play that risk with every piece of the development. So... Um, if you choose an off-the-shelf engine like uh, Unreal or Unity, you sort of accept the risk that things might break or they might change on you because the company decides that they want to go into a different direction or they don't want to support this anymore. You know, it's not top priority. Uh, As well as distribution. So if you don't distribute yourself, you put it on Steam or whatever, you accept risk with that. So everything that's a prepackaged thing, you're accepting risk that if you're not handling it yourself. But you have to weigh like what's the best option because sometimes you want to take that risk and sometimes you don't. That's what game development is. It's making tough choices. Yeah. 
Well, so now let me talk a little bit about the new design of my code that gives me some advantages related to these game engines that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm using this framework, Antitas, and it's actually a pure C-sharp framework that is not dependent on Unity. Nice. I told you some it's some smart people that use it, and one of them wrote a really good article explaining how he uses Antitas and the architecture of his code. Just some really clean ways, you know, to decouple, especially decoupling your views. I'm actually not sure what the design pattern for this is called. It might be called service locator. I mean, how familiar are you with design patterns? Uh, like, not especially. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, there is this book called Game Design Patterns. It's actually free on the web that, like all the game devs say you should read. I've read it like twice, but I usually forget. You should put it in the show notes. It will be in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't feel like an idiot or something. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, you mean in the show notes after we release Uh, it? Yeah, in the show notes, like, so people can... Oh, okay. I thought you were saying I should have told you ahead of... Oh, yeah. Uh, Please keep me abreast (laughs) so I don't look like an idiot in front of the internet. (laughs) Good thing we can edit it to make ourselves sound smart. Just like individual words. If you guys knew how stupid we sound before the podcast is edited, you'd be surprised. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All it is is it's like a million monkeys typing at typewriters. Eventually, you're going to get Shakespeare. We just keep talking forever. Eventually, the smart comes out. And I just assemble. I cut out the good words, and I put all those words in order. <laughs> <laughs> totally got sidetracked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Design patterns. Okay. So... I believe this design pattern is called the service locator, but I'm not locating the service. So let's just call it the service pattern. Okay. (laughs) But the service locator pattern is like you have um, an interface that provides like shit that you need like to do. Like if you have a physics service, you'd say like, I got my physics service and I'm going to raycast, you know, these, uh, entities or whatever or you might have an audio service and you say audio service play this audio so these services are little clumps of related functionality so this the smart guy i guess i should his handle is fng games he runs a company called fng games unless his name is fung fung games and his last name is games but probably not but he wrote this article showing how he like abstracts everything and he puts everything behind services and all the services are interfaces and so you could really easy easily move to a different game engine if you want because the service is an interface so then like let's say you have audio service um that's an interface and then you would derive from that and call it unity audio service yeah if you're using unity and then you would put in your implementation on how Unity plays the audio. But then let's say you're like, oh man, Unity's not so good anymore. I want to switch over to Godot. Then when you move all your code to Godot, you just you implement the audio service, and then you would just call it like Godot audio service, and then you would implement how Godot plays audio. I think that that, that design pattern is, is really beneficial these days. Like It plays well into game d- design, Especially like if you can abstract away like a spe- like for an engine, if you have these interfaces and you like you said audio or like graphics drawing um, and you put that towards the engine, you have all your your game logic and uh, like the game loop and everything separate from that. Yeah, that also plays well into like the cloud computing model we have now. So mm. you have like AWS and DigitalOcean and Google Compute. Um, if you write your code in a way that abstracts away the services, you're not reliant on yeah. each cloud. And, and it goes on and on because the, the more you are flexible in that way, the if we're talking about risk, the less risk you have because you, you can actually freely move. Yeah, another really big advantage and another new um, thing I've been adopting is writing your code in that way makes it really easy to test because then in your tests, you can mock that interface, make sure it, like, played the sound without you know actually like playing the sound or just in your test just make sure the audio service that play was called yeah yeah so your game code um like all of your gameplay logic and everything never touches the engine it's completely separate and it runs 
outside of the engine. Also, like I, I think I, there's an article on uh, Gama Sutra about a guy who ported Shovel Knight to the Amazon Fire TV, and they said that Yacht Club Games wrote their code in that way. So when he was writing the specific draw calls for the Fire TV, that's all he had to write. He didn't have to touch anything else because it was so nice. So if you're if you're a game dev, you know, porting is a big thing. If you especially now, like you're def, you're probably not going to have like a one hit wonder. You want to get on as many platforms as possible. If you're going to port your code, it's a good way to write it. Well, now because most engines like will let you export to a lot of platforms. Now I think it's just more if you want to switch engines or frameworks, since most engines and frameworks are already going to export to every platform. Yeah, it's good to be flexible. Yeah, you're a lot safer. Like you said, it reduces the risk. And it makes it straightforward. If you do want to switch, you just implement all the interfaces. It's not hard to do. Mm-hmm. We've already talked a lot about like actual <laughs> coding and stuff. but I mean, This is ostensibly a game development podcast. Let me talk about one other thing related to the architecture real quick. Sure. Um, so another big part of the architecture is making your code so that it doesn't know that it's being drawn, that your views are so abstracted that like the game code doesn't even know, you know, that, that it has views. And so that's been another cool thing that, I don't know, it's just cool. Like when you, <laughs> it's weird to like talk about code as being cool, but like, when you know how you were coding something and then you like find a cleaner way to do it, you're just like, wow, that's really cool. Like, Oh yeah. When you when your head is in a, <laughs> an editor all day and you like are seeing it and you solve that problem or you, or you create that level of abstraction and it like works in a smoother way that's easier to understand. That's like magic. Yeah. It's like that moment when, when something clicks and that happened to me like two days ago. Um, it was just like the ECS thing clicked. So we'll use a, a physics example. Most physics engines have a body or a rigid body, they're sometimes called. Mm-hmm. So Unity has a, a rigid body class. And I was like, how do I abstract this thing away? And I was like, I'll just make an interface. And I had a body interface. You know what an adapter is? You can wrap, like you would wrap Unity's class into your own class and then make it implement an interface. Okay. So it basically just makes one class adapt to an interface, basically. So I was making an adapter for that. Put, I mean, didn't spend a huge amount of time on it. And then I was like, I'm so cool because I made, <laughs> like, my my code is engine agnostic because I got this interface. Then for ECS, I was like, I'll just throw this whole thing on a component. So my component has the entire body on it which is not how you want to do it because then that body has a lot of its own data, like velocity, position, uh, the body type. Is it like kinematic or static or dynamic? When I was doing the components, I was putting big objects into the components and I was like, wait, that's not right. (laughs) Like you're supposed to with ECS, like your component should have a separate component for each part of the body. Sure. So you'd say like body type dynamic, velocity component uh position component freeze rotation component and you just attach those you attach those and then you don't even need to make an adapter since your view (laughs) i'll probably have to actually show the code (laughs) it's pretty hard to talk about this without like showing it but the view reacts to all the individual components as opposed to having the view on the component if we're calling the body the view because that's how the engine interacts mm-hmm. so basically i realized you don't you don't put a big thing into a component you put a lot of small things sure and then your view reacts to each individual change and then that moves the body your view controller moves the body instead of instead of your game code moving the body itself does that sort of make sense yes your game code should only really do stuff with the components. It shouldn't be like editing data on some big structure. Right. It's all it's all about yeah breaking that down to yeah because then because then your systems can react to an individual component because you mm-hmm. break it into the smallest pieces possible. You know you'll have your velocity system, 
your body type system, your game code doesn't even know. That's the yeah. cool thing. It's like it doesn't know. It's yeah, no in in air quotes, but yeah. It's it's all it's all, it's the leather levels of abstraction that like every every time you can do that, it, it leads to eat more manageable code. Especially for bigger projects, like yeah. as the code base grows. If you have a really solid architecture, like you can get really big and you'll be all right. Yes. That's what it's been all about for me. I don't know if we got too much into the nitty gritty there. We got into the weeds, but I think that people like, I don't know if there's a lot of resources for people listening to this sort of like real world game development. So yeah, actually seeing people or hearing people use it in the real world and going more in depth than just like, just like a a high level view, you you know, we went into it. I think it's beneficial. Uh, Please let us know if it's beneficial to you. Yeah, we do want to know what people want to hear about if you want more or less details. So that was a pretty good dive into Unity and some of the stuff you're doing right now. Uh, We are going to to step in our time machine. We're going to go back. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) This is a transition. Wait, like what? Yeah, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the days of Super Mario Brothers crossover like we did in the first episode. We got to the point where we were talking about how Mario was able to float with a space bar. Oh, yeah. And how it was uh, tangentially inspired by an EGM prank. So uh, we're going to continue on that the little journey as, as we uh, move towards how Super Mario Brothers came, Super Mario Brothers crossover came to be. So after you got Mario jumping... Uh, what was your approach to, like, was it fully formed that you wanted to make the entire Mario Brothers 1 game inside of Flash and have that modified, or was it a, a less ambitious goal starting out? The goal was always to make the whole game. So what was your, your next approach then after you made him float? Like, how did you go from where you were to to that full-fledged game? Like, what was your next step? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of in-between Pre- Pretty there. big jump. Yeah, exactly. Between... Uh, having them fly and then like having a whole game (laughs) this is the next step like i just i mean the process was basically just trying stuff and then reading books trying more stuff read more stuff in a book (laughs) (laughs) oh (laughs) well because i kind of uh you you can't you kind of just like search online and get the answer like now it's just like just do a quick search and like it'll tell you how to do like like even really specific things like you can get tutorials on like doing platformer movement or like collisions and all that so so let's do a a smaller chunk then let's say like i'm assuming you wanted to make world one one as like your first i did have a terrible level editor that i made i remember i downloaded a tutorial for some kind of tile based level editor and then i just like changed it (laughs) (laughs) this is the best way to do it Uh, yeah um yeah so it like had a grid and i think like that entire that entire project was one class it was in one file that's pretty monolithic really good programming technique i don't think i have the level editor i wish i had like video of it I'll try to find it, though. That would be kind of uh, fun to show how bad it was. That would be cool. Even though it was, like, bad and poorly made, like, it was really functional. And even if you have a bad tool, when you make a tool yourself, you can add any feature you need. And the way I developed is, like, I would just add, you know, you're trying to make a level, and you're like, oh, wait, this level's bigger than one screen. (laughs) So I need a way... (laughs) I need a way to like make it bigger. So I just like added a button that just said add column. And I just click on the add column button like 50 <laughs> times. Instead <laughs> of having like a box that like is 50 yeah. columns. Instead of, yeah, instead of like having a width, I just had an add column button. And I just keep clicking it like <laughs> click, 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 click. And then I remembered that like sometimes I'd make a mistake. I think it was on the first level. I don't know why I remember so specifically, but. I do remember when I was making the first level, I accidentally made it one column too big. I think it was near the end of the level. 
You probably don't know the levels as well as I do, but oh, I'm positive I don't. <laughs> but like, there's this big stretch of of like land after the the first group of pipes. There's like a little jump, and then there's like a big stretch where you get the star. There's a fire flower. Well, there's a mushroom and a fire flower there. But I remember I accidentally added an extra column there, and so it was too long. And then I was like, well, how do I get rid of a column? <laughs> so it's like remove column button <laughs> i mean that's how it works like naturally right so like as you need these things you're gonna add them to the tool yeah and i had like i had to be able to remove the column like from a specific part because i couldn't i couldn't like drag tiles or anything i could only just paint like i couldn't move them i remember i just added like a thing to just like click on a tile and then i would just press remove column and it would just remove the entire column of tiles from that. That's really funny. It's just funny because, like, it's not very, like, user-friendly or functional. Like, yeah, you would think it would have, like, a width and a height. But no, just buttons that <laughs> did each individual thing. But it worked. I was able to make 32 levels with it. <laughs> oh, that, that tool didn't even change, did it? So later we added the Lost Levels and Super Mario Brothers Special. And I actually made a new level editor for those that's cool i did that by editing a different level editor the level editor i used later was actually made with unity interesting i actually mean we used unity um we didn't like export a tool with unity Mm -hmm. so we were actually using the unity editor and it's because someone had a really good plugin called 2d toolkit i like i downloaded a tile mapping plugin and then i modified it to add extra features that we needed for super mario crossover interesting that was when we added the ability to play like easy and hard versions of each level so we needed really advanced features in the level editor that could remove or add tiles based on what character you're playing as or like if the character can swim um is the character good at fighting bowser we we had a property called poor bowser fighter (laughs) like is this person a poor bowser fighter if they are let's give them a an extra item block to help them during the fight which is funny because that's actually uh kind of what nintendo does in their mario games now like if you die on a bunch of levels they'll give you like uh, a special item because they're like you're not very good so here's like a little help um but yeah it is kind of funny how more advanced that tool got like it started out being really bad and then people wanted more levels and i was like i can't because i have such a terrible tool (laughs) so i had to make a new tool that's super interesting level one one when you finished that was that like a vertical slice for you was that like a goal like i'm gonna make the first level make it play all the way through and like good or did you like just make all the levels before you tried out all the gameplay mechanics when I develop, like, I really like having something to play. Like, I don't, it's not fun to work if you don't have something to play. So I think I made the first level, didn't really worry so much about the others. And then, then I was adding the characters. I remember when I added Mega Man, then I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was something about Mega Man. I, I don't know if it's because he, like, can shoot. Or I don't know, but for some reason, Mega Man was the character for me that I was like, yeah, like this is awesome. I mean, it's he's such an iconic character from that period, too. Yeah, it could be it, too. And he's blue, so he like, well, I guess the sky is blue, but he contrasts with the bricks and everything. Nah, that probably doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, he was blue. Yeah. Mar- Mario's not blue, and he was blue, so that's why. <laughs> But yeah, that that's super cool. A pretty like I guess you would call it controversial decision that I made was to not have Zelda 2 Link in the game. I didn't even think about that until now, but yeah. For some reason everybody thought that I never thought of putting Link from Zelda 2 in the game even though he actually comes from a side scroller and right, Link from would... Zelda 1 doesn't. Yeah, they were like like you know, you, you should really think about Link from Zelda 2, it's like, he's from a side-scroller. He would work better. <laughs> Did you know that? And I'm like, oh, man, I never knew there was a Zelda 2. <laughs> yeah, there was a second one. <laughs> it's sort of the opposite thing. Like, remember when I said I had Mega Man, and I was like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Mega Man works perfectly. When I put Zelda 2 Link in, I was like, this, I don't like this. I was like, this doesn't work. 
the way I want it to. It was because of his boomerang. Because I really wanted Link to have a boomerang. Because that's kind of an iconic weapon for him. At least it used to be. In the 2D games. I think people think more of the bow and arrow probably as his... And the sword and the master sword and the hillian shield. As of, like, Breath of the Wild, like, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but I really wanted to have a boomerang. And uh, so I put Zelda 2 Link in... But because he can duck, like, because he can duck when you hold down, mm-hmm. the boomerang control just kind of sucked. It was also really annoying having to duck to hit the bad guys because they're all really short, you know? So you'd always have to just constantly, like, jab them. Yeah. So then I was like, well, I'll just put Zelda 1 like in because he's small. So then that eliminates the crouching problem. And uh, I'll just give him the downward thrust and upward thrust because that's all everybody would want from Zelda 2 anyway is the downward and upward thrust. So he's got the best of both worlds. I think it played out well. And I think that that shows like that there are a lot of gameplay considerations that come into play, especially when you're taking characters from a totally different universe and putting them in. Um, you have to make concessions and changes. Yeah. I mean, I did make a lot of changes. I think that might be a good topic um, to talk about how I modified the characters because each uh i mean i think all of them were modified that is a great topic yeah a topic for maybe another another time yes tease come back so uh because this is about video games um and not just making them but also playing them recently i've actually been playing nothing um i've been so busy this month but the last game that I did play um, and I beat uh, was Super Meat Boy. They re-released it for the Switch, so I bought it on the Switch, and it's like I love the Switch because I can—I don't have to be like tied to my TV. I can take uh. it to bed or I can take it to work. So if I if I need to, because I'm not home a lot to sit down and play games. I that is one of those games that has been on my list to finish forever. I've I bought it on PC when it came out on PC. And I spent, I, I probably played the last level of that game like a hundred times and I never beat it. Whoa. I just, I don't know why. Like, I think it was a mental hangup for a while. Um, and it, on the Switch, I like beat it all the way through. This is all in the light world, by the way. I didn't play the dark world. Yeah. Um, but I got to the last level and I actually did beat it and it felt amazing. Um <laughs> So, and I just really like that game. That's like one of my, even though I didn't beat it, like it, it plays and handles so well. I like the art style. I like just the way it, it feels. It has great game feel. Meat Boy really goes where you want him to go. Mm-hmm. You know, like he has really good control in both the air and on the ground. Yeah, that's one of those games where when you die, you're not blaming the game. You're like, this is my fault. Exactly. That's what kind of made it frustrating when I didn't beat it. It's like, this is all my fault. Like, like, why there's... can't I just blame the game? <laughs> <laughs> and that's actually a good... Uh, people think that like things should react with physics, like real-world physics. And that game is perfect to show you that like every modification that Meat Boy does, that was like fine-tuned by the developers. They talked about yeah. that. It's not real-world physics. Like They sat there and changed values until it felt right. Is his name Tommy? Tommy. Yeah, I mean, he's talked a lot about that, how how it's, like, really hard to recreate it because everything was, like, so fine-tuned in the code. I think he said a lot of it was hacked in, just, like, his uh, the minutia of his movements. Yeah, and, and I think that, like, Mario plays the same way. Like, Mario's jump is not, like, a perfect physics-style jump. Like, they, yeah. they spend a lot of time modifying it. Your jump up is different than your jump down. Yeah, my first my first version of the Mario jump was actually pretty bad. And then later I kind of fixed it. I think in the first version of Super Mario Crossover, he has the bad jump. And then I fixed it later. If you were to compare the two, do you think it's like a perfect recreation of like the NES game? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's totally not. I just got it as close as I could without going crazy. Sure, sure. So that's really what I've been playing. Unfortunately, I'd I'd love to spend more time playing games, but... um... I just have but the, the world's falling apart though. So <laughs> I know, I mean, I'd, I'd love to just like shut the door and play games and not worry about anything, but, uh, that's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't play much this month either. <laughs> got, uh, got really carried away with all that, uh, ECS and 
I didn't even talk about test-driven development. I'll have to say that for next time, but... Uh, yeah, it's a bottomless topic, like all the stuff we do, so... But there was a game uh, that I rented. Mm-hmm. Have you ever played any of the Assassin's Creed games? I have not played any of them, even though they have been around for a long time. I have also not played any of them until I played one. Interesting. <laughs> Twist. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I uh, played Assassin's Creed Origins. I guess I can tell a little side story. Mm-hmm. I was at the mall because uh, I was actually getting my iPhone battery replaced because you know how Apple was offering the uh, replacements yep. for like 29 bucks. So I was waiting for my phone to get replaced and I walk into GameStop, you know, as as we do as gamers. I always, <laughs> always find the nearest like game store and go in there. It's a natural pull. It is. It's like a gravity. It's like, I, gotta, I can't. I can't stay away. But I don't know. Just when I was in there, one of the guys that worked there—I don't know—he must have been bored or something. But he talked to me for like seriously, like twenty-five minutes. Like just talked to me, even though there were like other customers and stuff. Like he was just like talking to me about games. And he was telling me all these games I need to play. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the best customer service that has ever existed. <laughs> and he mentioned. Um, He's like, yeah, he's like, Assassin's Creed Origins is really cool, and it takes place in Egypt. I was like, what? Did you say it takes place in Egypt? He's like, yeah, it takes place in Egypt. And then, like, I just went and rented it, because I actually live near a video store. That's interesting that one exists. I live near an old-school video store, so it's really easy for me to play a lot of games, which is really cool. That is a rarity these days, I know. Sure. It's a luxury that I, I am aware of how rare it is, and I, <laughs> I savor it. So anyway, he's like, yeah, it's Egypt. And I was like, I'm going to play that game. Because, uh, I mean, how many games take place in Egypt? Yeah, not a lot. It, and it, I do know of the Assassin's Creed games, and I know about Origin, and, and a lot of people said it's one of the better ones that have come out recently because they used to pump those out every year. Yeah, and that's why I didn't play them because I don't like to play games that are just like, yeah, part of like a factory, basically. Mm-hmm. Like just pumping them out. But it was it was the setting... You know, Egypt and the time period, it takes place in, I don't know, like 30 BC or something like that. And yeah, it's actually pretty fun. Pretty good game. Would recommend? Yeah. So the game it reminded me most of was The Witcher 3. Have you played that? I have played about halfway through The Witcher 1, and then I have not played any more Witcher games. The Witcher 3 is amazing. On one of these episodes, I'll just have to talk about that for a while. I, I hear nothing but great things, and I also hear it's a major time investment. It took me a year. <laughs> I'm not joking. I played that game for a year. But yeah, so, I mean, it's not as deep as The Witcher 3, but the gameplay is kind of similar. The Witcher 3 really excels with its story, and it's, I was going to say it's setting, but this game really excels in its setting also. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just like... Uh, do your crafting you know every game has that now you're like crafting shit mm-hmm. collecting shit craft shit there are some things in <laughs> gaming that like they they get really popular from like one game and then like every game's gotta have it and crafting is one of those things and yeah i actually don't know how it compares to the other assassin's creed games because i never played them just because it's an assassin's creed game there's like some weird stuff that happens like you're just playing the game and then you like do some story thing and then all of a sudden, like, you're not in Egypt anymore, and you're in some cave in the present time with some weird woman. And you're like, what's happening? Like, why am I with this woman? I don't know who she is. And she, like, complains for, like, a few minutes. And then you go back to Egypt. Weird. <laughs> I'm sure there is some lore to this that... No, I mean, I've heard there's this thing in Assassin's Creed called the Animus. Okay. So the concept is that people like in the present day like stab themselves with like (laughs) i don't know they like stab dead people and then they stab themselves with their blood or something (laughs) okay all right you're selling me (laughs) they get their like blood or whatever and they're like sticking the blood in themselves and then they like go into the mind or they like relive the life of uh the people that they're stabbing with You know um, I mean? it's like blood or whatever. They're like they got their blood, like vampires. Okay. So they got their uh, 
their stab thing going on and then you, she like relives the memories of this guy from Egypt and I've heard a lot of criticisms of, sorry criticisms of the game that people found it annoying when you would go back to the present world when I was reading about this game people were saying like it's it's a lot less annoying in this game going into the the present day is less annoying and it wasn't that annoying so like I guess it's improved but every time it happened I was like why is this happening who is this woman why do I care about this woman sake of story I guess alone because it doesn't seem to add anything to the gameplay it totally doesn't it's like why doesn't this game just take place in Egypt sure like I get it that they have this like story arc of the whole series and the series is about like going back into people's minds I would still just like not put it in the game yeah because it's annoying my personal opinion is story is good if it's just a story-based game but the gameplay should it shouldn't get in the way of the gameplay yeah this is not adding anything to the story in egypt and that's why it's annoying and every time it it starts to happen like you start to identify it because it'll have a different loading screen and then you just start to get mad because you're like oh i'm going back to the, the present day where i'm just some weird woman I still don't even know her name. And then her, well, I, I almost spoiled something for people, that, for people that actually care about that part of the story. There are probably some people that do care. There's like some gameplay where you actually have to play as her, which one thing about games that makes no sense, just because of, you know, if you know how games are made, and even if you don't know how they're made, people can identify this, but like, like the main character is like really acrobatic, you know, he's like strong. Mm-hmm. He can, like, climb on all kinds of crazy buildings. He can just, like, climb walls that have, like, the thinnest cracks in them. He'll just, like, find the cracks and stick his fingers in the cracks and just, like, you can climb anything. He can do all these crazy jumps. So then when you go back into the present day, they're like, let's make her do some of that climbing acrobatic shit. You know, since it's a game, all they do is remap all of his movements onto her character model. And now all of a sudden she's like this amazing acrobatic (laughs) person that can like do all this crazy climbing. But like, why? She's just some like scientist. It's because she lived it. But you know what I mean, though? That it's like weird that games will just take everything one character does and just map those movements onto another one. And in real life, that's like not how it works. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, it's reuse. That's why. It's because it's a development thing. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the Matrix where you can, like, download, like, martial arts skills. I I love how you're like, play this game. It's really good. Here's everything that's wrong with it. (laughs) (laughs) That's more fun to talk about the things that are wrong. (laughs) I'd say it's really good, but I think it's, it's good. I think it's worth playing for Egypt. Sure, sure. Yeah, the one thing that I do hear pretty good things about is they, um, the development team at Ubisoft does a good job of like recreating their locations that they that you play in. Like they're really accurate, or they study that and they spend time doing that. Yeah, I mean, I just want to see the pyramids mm-hmm. and the Sphinx, and you can. That's pretty cool. You can climb them. You're like this is what it would have been like to climb. <laughs> The Great Pyramid of Giza. Finally, I can feel like what it's, it was to be an acrobatic assassin back yeah, in the this is what Egyptian it would have times. felt like to hang from the Sphinx's nose. Yeah, I'm never going to get to do that in real life because he doesn't <laughs> have a nose anymore. You're right. And it's cool because he has some paint on him in this game because it's like, it's still a while after it was built, but not like 2,000 years or whatever. Sure. So it's cool because you can see at least what they thought that the stuff looked like and it's kind of also cool the pyramids are actually reflective cool. i mean i don't know the scientific reason or anything but in the tops of the pyramids have like a different material on them so they look really cool and they like reflect the sun well that is interesting i heard you might also have another interesting thing you'd like to discuss yeah we're now getting to our thing where we talk about one interesting thing right really really awesome name for this segment Uh uh-huh interesting thing so yeah i watched a video about quantum computing it's pretty cool and i was like that's pretty crazy 
I was hoping that you'll know more about it than me. So I do know a little bit about it. One of the things I want to do, uh, if I don't, like, I want to see if I can actually get into grad school this year. I'd like to do grad school. And one of the things I was thinking about is, is studying quantum computing because it's, um, it, I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, I actually have access to an IBM quantum computer. Uh, you could sign up and it's, um, it's like a web-based interface and they have a five qubit quantum computer that you can run code on or run algorithms on and get results back, which is really neat. You just pay with credits. Is this something only you have access to? No, it's not just me. Uh, it was like an, I don't know if you can still sign up for it, but it was something that you could sign up for. You like gave them some information about yourself and then they gave you an account. No, I've seen that, that IBM is letting, I think they're like anyone. Yeah do it and there's also another company but i forgot what the other one was but there's two um websites that'll allow you to do it it's really neat like it's i'm still trying to understand it because there's it's such a high level right now it's 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 a high degree of sophistication right now with how you approach quantum computing because you have to know all these certain algorithms because it's not just like you're not writing like if then you know it's not like coding yeah it's gates right yeah exactly like quantum gates. I saw a little bit about it, and I saw the uh, interface for it, and it actually looks a little bit like a musical score. Yes, exactly. And they do a pretty good job of giving you documentation to try to understand it, but it is still really hard. Yeah, but I feel like we should start, um, we should explain what a qubit is, because I think that's the, uh, the main difference. Yeah, so if you think about classical computers, the way that we use them right now, uh, everything is at its core, it's binary. So it's either like a bit can be on or off uh, at any given time. Often viewed as a zero or a one. Right. Um, If you want to represent it, it's a zero or a one. And we use that and then we just extrapolate different things out from it. So anything that you're doing on a computer will eventually get boiled down to zeros and ones. I think most people at least have heard of that concept. So with a quantum computer, you have something called a, they call it a qubit or a quantum bit. And instead of it being a zero or a one, it can be, it can have quantum superposition. So it can be like one or zero or both, or like a, you know, certain probability of, of one or the other. Don't they say that it's actually one and zero? Yeah, you can think of it that's kind of what superposition means. It can yeah. be two things at one time or many things at one time. Really hard to comprehend. Right. It's one and zero until you observe it, right? I'm not going to speak from a position of authority on this because <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of why I want to go to school to learn it. Yeah. The way that you actually determine what your values are, it's like you can't observe it. So they go through these different ways of going around. Because as soon as you observe it, it collapses to a zero or a one. And you want to get to the point where you can see a probability of what it might do without actually having that collapse. How can you do that? Smart people. (laughs) (laughs) That's how. Um, Smart people. That's to get it to that position too. They have these quantum computers need to be almost near absolute zero to get to where they are. Uh, It takes days to cool these things down. They're only like a few degrees Kelvin above absolute zero. They're kept colder than outer space. Yes. It is some of the coldest places in the known observed universe. They have different like atoms and, and combinations to get these. They're trying to entangle the particles too. So like that's how they achieve it at those very low states. But what you actually are able to do is it's not like a, a replacement for a classical computer. Uh, you're not going to like be carrying these around like in your pockets. You're not going to like have a quantum phone. What most likely you'll have is something that they have now where you'll have an interface over the web or something like that that you'll control from a remote location. And they're very good for certain specific problems. They're not like great, you know, it's not like, oh, this is going to run like the best freaking graphics available. It's going to be like certain hard to tackle physics problems and stuff like that, at least how people envision it right now. I mean, that is always subject to change. But what you get back, instead of getting like an answer, you get like a probability distribution. And it's kind of like one of those things where if like if you can think you have like two bits, you can have like four different combinations of stuff. Yeah, zero, one, two, and three, yeah. Right, so you could have like zero, one, both. Like you, it's an exponential growth in like the amount of information you can get out of the amount of yeah. bits as opposed to a classical computer. 
So the more bit qubits you can have, you can you can see very quickly the amount of information you can get out of those is much higher than just having regular bits, which is where you get into that theory of uh, quantum computing and how how it can potentially change the way we do encryption and stuff like that. They say they're good at asynchronous programming, or did I understand that wrong? Uh, I'm not sure. Like, are they actually asynchronous? Like the the qubits themselves? Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, is it like is it multi-threading, or is it similar to multi-threading? I don't think that there is a one-to-one map of what we do currently. So it's just it's different, so we can't even understand it. Because, like, they said it would be good for AI is one of the examples. Yeah, because, like, kind of how machine learning works, I think it, it maps pretty well onto that. Neural networks. Yeah, so it's an exciting field. And, and I, I think the reason that, I, I, not I think, IBM has said as much, the reason that they've put that tool out there for pe- just regular people is they're not totally sure what to do with it yet. Like, they have this technology, and they have some problems that they think that it would be useful to solve. But then again, they don't have, like, a good idea of, you know, how, how to use it effectively or better. And I, that's always how it's been. It's like a lot of engineers and scientists will create these cool technologies, and then they don't know what to do with it. Just, I don't know, one random example is, like, a Raspberry Pi. I mean, people use that for all kinds of things, for things that, you know, they weren't even expecting to use them for. So Right, right any kind of technology yeah they're looking for the innovators and people to like somebody did make a quantum computing game did you hear that i have not heard of that now i forgot what the game was i mean it's something really simple but somebody did do it so that's kind of cool yeah like i said it's something i'm super interested in and um if you're interested i can give out the documentation that's in that ibm thing it's fascinating to read yeah it's something i would be interested in if i wasn't super busy like making a game (laughs) it is not like conventional programming there are certain things that are trying to make it more like that now Um, microsoft has a language that they have released i want to say it's q sharp or something to that effect where it's based on creating a language for quantum computing so it's cool like there's a lot of space that they're actually the place i i work at a university microsoft just gave them like a million dollars to do quantum computer research you can probably work for them, maybe. I'm looking into it. <laughs> if I wasn't so freaking busy making podcasts and whatever. Yeah, this podcast takes up all your time. Well, I have to do it once a month, and that's time that I would c- clearly be using for quantum computing. <laughs> the quantum stuff is just like, I don't know, it's fascinating. It's just quantum mechanics in general. Mm-hmm quantum mechanics was already weird enough but now they're making computers that can do that it's yeah it 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 is strange because it is um it makes you think of the universe differently because it is all probability it's not assurances well it's just it's so weird because like the the classic example of schrodinger's cat Mm -hmm. the cat like they say the cat is both alive and dead superposition until it's observed it's like what so how What, what does that mean but like that's what it is and that's like uh in physics that's why there's like a hard time mapping the macro world to the micro world is because this is probabilistic this is like determinist or like you can actually when you're that big thing the forces cancel out and you have like yeah pretty uh pretty fascinating stuff from just the quantum realm to me is fascinating that's what was so fun about going through school like when i would take some of the high level advanced classes that i took like sitting down and getting to like the end of the semester and like walking into and seeing the blackboard full of like tons of math and like looking at that and knowing what it means and like understanding the world and how things function it it was just such an amazing feeling like it was frustrating to get there it was uh like you bang your head against the wall trying to make things make sense and when it clicked it just felt uh incredible like that's why going to school is something i would love to do again because that feeling is hard to replicate yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had a really good experience at school then. That's how I remember it, rose-colored glasses. There was plenty of, like, just awful, like, late nights studying and, and heartbreak. Yeah, because I don't really like school. I think it's just because of the way I learn. I just always find it faster to learn on my own than I do, like, in a classroom or something. But, I mean, you do get 
a lot of experiences and there's certain experiences that only a school can give you. I agree that I, I also like there's so much I learned on my own today, like practical skills and a lot of programming stuff like I, I picked up much after school. Some of the engineering stuff I did, like the math classes, the physics classes, the combination thereof. I don't know if I would be able to teach myself that personally. I'm just not sure I could find the material and make it make sense in a way that I didn't have somebody there to break down the information and then help if I had issues. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, that was an interesting thing, and I hope people found that interesting. We said it was interesting, so we said the word interesting a bunch of times. Then they have to. But I think that's a podcast. I think that was a a good podcast. It was a podcast. Do you have any closing statements? We're looking for feedback. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, just having an outlet is good, I think. I agree. We'll be back in a month with another podcast. Sit, let us know what you'd like us to cover. If there's anything we've talked about that you want to go more in depth on or anything we didn't cover that you'd like to know, it'd be great to hear back. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, at Gura. That's G-O-O-3-R. Hey, what does that mean? So it's a nickname I got in high school. Gura was my nickname because my last name's Geyer. So I think it was just uh... like, it was close to it. Uh, and when I signed up for, I think, the original Xbox Live, Gore was taken, so I had to just replace the through with the E, and that's been my handle ever since. Huh. It's interesting how we get these online handles and, like, the stories behind them. I have one, too, but I'm not going to go into my personal, the story behind my personal one, because I, <laughs> I, <don't really, laughs> I don't really want people to know what it is, honestly. <laughs> sure. That's fine. <laughs> My Twitter handle is really, really creative. There's a really long story behind it. It's actually the name that I was given when I was born. Whoa. So really, really crazy story. Like, I was born, and they said, your name is Jay Pavlina. And even when I was that young, I knew, like, this is what I want my Twitter handle to be. <laughs> yes, they said, here is your name and your... There'll be something later called Twitter. Those are my first words was like, I want this to be my Twitter name. You're just a trailblazer. <laughs> so my personal yeah, Twitter is jpevlina, but I don't know. I don't tweet very much. And the, the company, it's the name of the podcast, um, Exploding Rabbit Hole. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. That's the new name. <laughs> yeah, Exploding Rabbit. I tweet stuff sometimes. So. I am uh, tragically online, so I'm always on Twitter. Yeah, how do you do it? Oh, it's terrible. I hate that garbage fire, and I can't quit it. It's a bad thing for you. Yeah, man. it's a vice. I mean, yeah. it's good and bad, but it's not good for you. I mean, there was a time when I followed Twitter, and I was just like, I can't handle this. Yeah. And uh, so I just tweet whenever I got like Yeah, a, stick with that instinct. That's how I use Facebook, too. My my whole instincts for social networking is just, like, barely use it. Yeah, but you probably live a much better life that way. Yeah, I feel pretty happy, I guess. Uh, I decided to go <clears throat> all in on that and just uh, just live it. Feel it coursing through my veins. <laughs> it, Iggy does that. My wife, for people that don't know. Like, she, she always tells me what's happening. So, I find out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to get a a social media arbiter and step away a wife yeah exactly (laughs) cool yeah thanks everybody for listening to our second episode yeah thanks and we'll see you next time